sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi, this is Ryan Bledsoe, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and I'm delighted to finally welcome to the podcast a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, author of several books, including the ever-popular American Cosmic, and it's soon-to-be follow-up. Well, I was going to say Contact 21, but that might not be the case anymore, but we'll get to that. And I always like to mention when I know, uh, also a mother and parent, so I appreciate yes. that, coming from that background yeah. myself, uh, yeah. Diana Walsh-Pusolka. <laughs> Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, listen, when I finally managed to get a hold of you and you were going to do some interviews, um, the, the gods just were against us for, for a couple of weeks because of That's COVID right. and, and all yep. kinds of things. And this was one that people kept asking me in the DMs or on email or, or on the Discord server. So when's Diana coming on? When's Diana coming on? And we're finally here. So when you're listening to this, it's going to be pretty much be early March. So finally, Diana, got you on the podcast. We've got a lot to get through. Uh, and I'm excited to do so. Now, first off, Diana, I know your interest in UFOs really began in 2012, round about then. Yep. Bef- before that, growing up, what was your exposure to the subject of UFOs, particularly as someone with quite a religious background and upbringing? Yeah, well, okay. Um, I grew up in California. So when you say religious, it's true. My mother's Jewish and my father is Catholic. And I grew up in extended kind of like, I would call it like an Irish Catholic uh, milieu, like Irish Catholic family. Um, I, I did go to Catholic uh, high school. And so, but California is an eclectic place. And there's a lot of, if so where I grew up, there was, a, it's in Northern California, there was a lot of new ageism around. So a lot of Catholics and Jewish people actually would, would, their religion was informed by new age beliefs and things like that. And as a kid, I actually rebelled against that. I didn't, I wasn't really, you know, I saw the new age belief systems as being kind of capitalistic, frankly. And, um, and I was going to a school where sisters and nuns were going to Central America to actually help people and dying in the process too. So, you know, I had this kind of view into different sorts of religions, new religious movements, as well as traditional religion, um, Catholicism, especially with respect to the people on the ground, you know, not the hierarchy of the church, but the actual people on the ground helping people. And that, that made a huge impact on me and my belief structure. Um, in terms of UFOs, I never thought of UFOs, actually, but it's kind of strange because in my family, there was a UFO sighting. Um, my brother had a sighting of a UFO and it's uh, it was it made the news and things like that. And my parents saw it, too. But I never thought about it. I never you know, I never thought about it until I started this um, research in 2020, you know, in 2012, basically. And so but what I was interested in was I was interested in the very mystical 
aspects of my religion and different religions. And that, and I started that really young. So I started that around 11. And um, I would say that when I hit the study of UFOs in 2012, I recognized that everything that I had been doing my whole life was basically studying contact events. So I was studying them historically, but I didn't have the framework for calling them UFOs until 2012. Call me late to in the game, you know, kind of an idiot, you know, as a kid. Um, but that's, that's how it happened. I got the tools of, you know, I kind of went through the tools of learning, you know, the, the uh, graduate methods and stuff like that for studying religious studies. And by the time I studied UFOs, I was equipped to go back historically and look at some what I call contact events. You say late to the game, but I think fresh perspective might be a good way to put it because like you say, it gave you the tools and you didn't have that bias of I've got an interest in UFOs, I've grown up on sci-fi films, I've read all these books. So you came into it with a unique skill set, which has obviously helped you in what you've done. I have to just go back a second though, Diana, because you mentioned your your brother had a sighting and people will be kicking me if I don't ask you (laughs) what what was it he saw and, and where was it that happened? Sure. So we grew up in a place called Granite Bay in uh, Northern California. And it's a really beautiful place right at the base of the foothills up to the Sierras. And so it's somewhat hilly. Okay. So my brother was maybe 11 or so, and I was a little bit older. And I remember that he, 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 this is how he described it. So he was up, he was riding his bike, you know, and he was up on a hill and he saw an orange, um, orb in the sky and he didn't know what it was so he looked at it and he said as soon as he recognized that it was something that wasn't an airplane he said it turned around and looked at him and then he got afraid he was afraid and so he sped down the hill on his bicycle to come home and it followed him so it followed him down the road and it followed him to the driveway of my house and he threw down his bike and he ran inside and he yelled and screamed for my parents well my father was an attorney um he was a somewhat well-known attorney in in that area and he came out with my mother and they both saw it. Uh, my mother's a nurse and she's very rational and they saw this thing right out there. And then it just, boom, disappeared. Well, my father went inside and he called the police cause he thought that they would listen to him, but they didn't, you know, but, um, so this was kind of like what happened and it was, you know, talked about for maybe a week in the family and then everybody just forgot about it. And it wasn't until around 20, 2012, 2013, when I, when I thought, well, you know, I got, I have, if this was, cause you know, my brother hence became a police officer and a sergeant and, you know, that kind of thing. So he's not a person who would make this up. And later he's, he would talk about it. And he said, this absolutely happened. And my mother said it absolutely happened. My dad's passed away. So I couldn't ask him about it. Um, but what I did was I tried to find evidence of it on record because I have the, you know, the, approximate date it happened. I knew that if they saw it, other people saw it too. Well, I could, I looked for it. I couldn't find it until just recently. And I didn't find it. It was actually on Halloween and my brother found it in a mountain journal um, newspaper. And he sent me the article and they said, Oh, you know, we're doing a throwback to back in the day, you know, um, the spooky stories back in the day. And they published that. And I, I got it. I found it in my inbox from my brother on Halloween um, just recently. 
That's awesome. And I like the fact that there's a police officer out there in, in California. I'm guessing he's yeah. based. Yeah. That, uh, if yeah. anyone does uh-huh. have a UFO sighting and they speak to him, <laughs> that he's not going to just totally throw it out the window and he can he can talk to them about it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Diana, so listen, we've got a lot to get through and I'm going to get to the book and I'm going to jump all over a little bit because there's, there's so much that I want to ask you. With your background in religious studies particularly, what parallels do you see and those who follow religions really closely to those who follow the UFO subject with the same sort of passion and faith. So many have different interpretations of various religious texts or, you know, how they follow certain books. And I see the same with people who talk about UFOs and, and non-human intelligences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, good question. So the parallels are striking. And in my field, um, the study of UFOs is something that's done. So I'm not the only person who's done this. I think I might be the only person who found out about the Fight Club College and, you know, that kind of thing and, and you know, published it at the time when it was just about to be disclosed. So, and I didn't, that wasn't coordinated. That was fully rogue. Um, I was working completely on my own. So what, what, you know, similarities and patterns do I see? Well, what happened was that I recognized that First, when you, you know, there isn't a lot of evidence that we have for UFOs. We have testimonial evidence. People who are um, like my brother, who are credible witnesses or people who are not credible witnesses. You have a lot of testimony. The same thing with religion. So within various traditions of religion, a lot of what it counts as, you know, um, something that is true, the evidence for it is usually just testimonial. So you have testimonial evidence. Uh, this doesn't fly in science. You know, scientists are looking for different types of evidence. They're not looking for testimonial evidence. So already you have correlations between belief in UFO, which doesn't have a lot of evidence. That, so you have to have a lot of faith, right, in order to believe. Okay, so now nowadays we have a lot more evidence of UFOs. We have them caught on radar and that kind of thing. So we do have this. And that's, by the way, very, very important for the study of UFOs, but also for the belief structure around UFOs. So before I got caught up in the kinds of things that I got caught up in after 2012, I approached the topic like I would any other um, religious event. Basically, I approached it as this is a faith community. I'm going to, I'm not a believer. I'm going into this community and I'm going to do field research among people who believe in UFOs. I don't have to believe in them to, to study what the effects are and what the social effects are. So that's the methodology I use going into them. Um, almost immediately, I found that a lot of the people who were these believers were also scientists. And so I called these, and a lot of them had their own experiences. So I called these people the meta experiencers because they were actually studying people who were not scientists who were having UFO experiences to get data from them. And so I thought, this is so strange. I'm just going to, this is a, you know, I didn't expect this at all. So that's, so immediately the, the, the story got weird, you know, the, the research got really strange. And that's when I realized that. I was in a territory that I hadn't been in, nor had a lot of my colleagues in religious studies. I was in a different territory. Arthur C. Clarke said, and I'll quote, and I'm going to read this, even though it's short to get it right, because I'll get slaughtered if I don't. (laughs) Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Would it be fair to say that many of the incredible events or miracles we've heard about for over the centuries and millennia 
could be explained potentially by advanced civilizations or non-human intelligences getting involved with our species throughout time. Obviously, in, in the Bible, we've got stories of people following moving stars in the sky. The Romans talked about burning shields in yes. the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got ancient structures that were built with incredible alignment to constellations in the sky that would still be difficult to do now with our advanced technology. Do you think that's a, a good explanation for, for what we read in religious texts? Okay, so I would say that you have to be careful with generalizations because when you take the history of religions, you can't even generalize from tradition to tradition, okay? So I would take case by case. I would, if I were to, you know, have a huge group of people who are people who study different religious traditions, including the UFO tradition, I would say what we need to do is we need to parse out these events that appear to be anomalous. And we need to take them case by case. And so with respect to some of the cases, absolutely, I think that's true. So yeah, that's one theory. To It's like an explanatory framework for trying to understand something that we just don't at this point understand. So that's one theory among many. How plausible do you think it is? Because when when I say that, even when I wrote that question earlier, straight away in my head, I started thinking, this just sounds like an episode of Ancient Aliens, this question, (laughs) because that's what you start to get to. But I think a lot of what programs like Ancient Aliens or Chariots of the Gods by Eric Von Daniken talked about had uh, a reason and logic to its foundation, not to say it's definitely true, but I could see the sense. And obviously 15 or 20 series into Ancient Aliens, things have gone a little bit off the rails and now it's every single thing is got goes back to Ancient Atlantis or something else. But do you think we can actually study that now in 2022 and go back and look at these texts? There's there's talk of using artificial intelligence to to scan religious texts. I think Tom DeLong talked about this on several interviews as well or do you think it's something that just because of the amount of time that's passed we have to leave and put to bed and move on no i think that um and this is why we have archives that you know they contain this historical knowledge and all we need are people who have the proper languages to go back and look and read them and i think that artificial intelligence reading these texts that i mean if you do Google searches, you're already constrained by the algorithms of the search themselves, right? So I don't think our artificial intelligence is the answer. I think that human eyes have to go back and look at these texts because a lot of things will be missed by artificial intelligence and there will be biases as well. So you have to have multiple people looking at these texts. So um, I was in the Vatican archive and I checked out a lot of what I consider to be contact events um, from, you know, at the actual manuscripts and the kinds of information that I got couldn't be had just through looking at something that, you know, you're, well, you're using a, a program for reading. I don't think we have artificial intelligence at the moment that is up to this task. I think at this point, you know, the Vatican archive, it has so much that's not yet translated into different languages, into even modern languages. And there's so much there that can tell us about what we are experiencing now that I think it's very important to continue with these kinds of um, research programs, basically. 
I'm going to come back to the Vatican stuff because one of the listener questions is based on that. So I'll give them credit when we get to it. Okay. Diana, American Cosmic, obviously a lot of people got in touch about the book. Um, Mm -hmm. It's become famous worldwide. Its reviews are fantastic if you read through it on Amazon. Even the people who are slightly sceptical about it give it glowing reviews in the way you've approached it, which is I think says a lot. What was it that led you to the idea for American Cosmic? Right. So what happened was that I had just finished a book about the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And purgatory is a, for for those who don't know, it's a Catholic doctrine. It used to be a Christian doctrine. I mean, Catholic is Christian, but a lot of people don't know that. (laughs) So that, you know, so basically it's a doctrine of the Christian church that that Catholics still uh, hold to. And this is this idea that there's a place between heaven and hell where souls go if they're not good enough to get into heaven. And so they go there. And um, what I found is that for, you know, 1500 years, people practiced this dogma and they, they prayed to, uh, for souls in purgatory that they don't suffer too much and things like that. And then it just disappeared. So my question going into that was <clears throat> what happened to this dogma, you know, um, and what I did a lot of archival research and I started in about 1100 and moved up to about 1800. And through my historical research in these archives, I came a lot, I came upon a lot of records and anecdotes about um, basically aerial phenomena, um, anomalous aerial phenomena, which had been interpreted to be either souls from purgatory coming to speak to people or angels or demons, right? So they were always these supernatural explanations for these aerial phenomena. And I kept a record of it. Um, and my record grew and grew and grew. At the end of that, I had this record and I published the book for on purgatory. And I, I might have one or two of these anecdotes in there, right? And so I showed a friend of mine and I said, what do you think of this? I hadn't thought of UFOs at all, actually, not one bit. And he looked it over and he read it and he said, you know, I think that this looks like Steven Spielberg stuff. Like it looks like, you know, close encounters, UFOs. And I honestly, at the at that point, it was a shock to my system. And I said, yeah, whatever, you're crazy, right? But of course, this is how this, this uh, research works. There's usually some strange coincidence that happens. And, and this is what happened. There was a UFO conference in my town and I attended it. And I listened to people who had these experiences and I recognized that there was a historical continuity between what I had studied to today. And so that's how I got into studying UFOs. I was like, maybe he's right. You know, maybe I need to look at these as modern reports of what we had going on back in the day. And so that's the, that's how I segued into studying UFOs. Um, I didn't expect at all what happened. I honestly didn't. I didn't expect to meet people like now Gary Nolan, he's come out as James in my book. Thankfully now I can talk about it. Um, So I didn't expect to meet people like that who were at the very top of their field doing research into basically UFOs now renamed UAPs. In your research, was there one opinion that you held at the start that, as you went on, changed most drastically by the end? Yes. Yeah, I was completely an atheist, a non-believer when I went in. Um, In the first two chapters of my book, I talk about how it's unbelievable that these amazingly intelligent people I'm with believe in UFOs. How can that possibly be? And so we went to New Mexico. We, uh, you know, we found these debris, right? And um, 
you know, a lot of weird people showed up in terms of like, you know, alphabet agencies, right? And things like that. And it was really off-putting, frankly. I was like, I don't want to deal with this at all. And there were many times when I decided to not continue on with my research, but somehow I got pulled back in. And so how did I change? Um, by the end of the book, I became agnostic, which means that I'm entertaining the possibility that this stuff is real, right? And now I think it's real. And I don't know what it is, though. I'm not going to say, you know, because there's too, there's still too much obfuscation. There's still too much government perception management. Um, and I'm suspicious of that. And I think that if somebody comes out and says, yes, we have an answer, I'm not going to believe it right away. How did if your conversation? Yeah, no, no, of course. How, how did your conversation change then in terms of like academia and your colleagues when you first must have talked about UFOs and maybe what you were doing with the book? And then as time goes on and you've got this, let's call it as a hit, it was a smash, it was so popular and yeah. still is. Yeah. To to those conversations you have with them now, ha- has your side of that conversation changed that much? Or do you feel they're different towards you just with the passage of time? Okay, my conversation hasn't changed, except for the fact that when I published the book, I was like, oh, no, there's something here, right? Okay, at the time I did this research, I was already a full professor. So you can't, you know, you're, you're, already, you're not going to get fired for doing anything weird, right? Even if you do something weird, you won't get fired. Um, I was, you know, I was the chair of my department. Okay. So I, and I was also well known in my field. So I had published enough, I'd won enough grant money to be solid. And although no one's solid, like, you know, look at the researcher, Harvard researcher, John Mack, you know, he was, a, he was investigated by Harvard. So I didn't tell a lot of people what I was doing. I just was doing it. I had some colleagues that I told who are, by the way, should be doing this too, because they have, you know, one's a, um, an Orthodox priest who knows Greek and reads the texts in Greek, you know, in the original languages. Another is a scholar of the Hebrew Bible who does the same. I mean, these people have the same idea that I do. So I shared what I was doing with them, but not to my colleagues in general. Um, they found out, of course. <laughs> so, but this is what's happened in terms of academic scholarship. So in the beginning, I think that people were, were okay with it. What they were a little concerned about was that I was basically making stronger claims than anybody had before. I was basically saying, I think we need to look at this because our colleagues in science are basically saying this is real and they have anomalous data, right? And I think that's pretty weird and we shouldn't just write it off as a Cold War phenomenon. And I think that made a lot of my colleagues pretty uncomfortable. Now, what's, you know, what's ironic here is that my stuff is peer reviewed and I publish with Oxford. Yet, it took coming out in the New York Times, of all things, for my colleagues to actually get on board, which I think is not, I don't think that's cool, <laughs> right? Because, you know, it should be the other way around. It should be that the scholars are saying, hey, yeah, we have some really interesting data here. We need to take a look at it. It shouldn't be media that comes out and says, wow, look, you know, we have this. And then the, the scholars, you know, look at it. That's just, you know, that's just a commentary on academia today. But when that when the New York Times articles hit and my book was in press, it hadn't yet been published, all of a sudden colleagues from all the universities called me and said, how can we get on board? How can we do this? And um, now I'm 
part of my job is to review this scholarship that's coming out. And I spend a lot of my time looking at new scholarship. I mean, there is a tidal wave of this stuff coming in now from scholars from three, four years ago who felt now it's okay to do this. So the tide has completely changed in academia. And, um, you know, a, a lot of it I, I give commentary on and I, you know, I suggest to presses, I'm the go-to person now for a lot of the presses who say, should we publish this or should we not publish this? And so if, you know, if these people are still looking at documents from, you know, you have to understand the government perception management produced a lot of documents. And if those people are taking that to be the scholarship, I'll, I'll say no, don't publish it because they can't even make the distinction between what's spin and then what's actually field research that's vetted. People like yourself and Avi Loeb at Harvard now, astrophysicists, are making huge headway in that. And I think people have got to thank you for that, that others are coming into now and asking questions and starting to look and say, is there something to this? Have we been missing something? And is I'm no scientist or, you know, intellectual or anything like that. You know, you've been on Lex Friedman's podcast, the really intelligent gentleman that can have a wonderful conversation with you. And you've got people like this now entertaining the notion of maybe there's something out there, maybe, and they're using language like non-human, alien, extraterrestrial, and they're not laughing. You know, mm-hmm. there's no mm-hmm. scoffing mm-hmm. behind it. There's almost a, it's, they almost find it a bit amazing that they're using this language so freely. But when you see Christopher Mellon saying this or the DNI Avril Haines talking, you know, openly in front of Congress and Senator Gillibrand and others, it's it's a huge tidal wave, like you say, and hopefully that, that carries on forward. What I'd like to know, was there something in your research for, for uh, American Cosmic that really surprised you that you weren't expecting to come across? Yes. Um, the first thing that surprised me was the amount of government involvement. Um, and that was disconcerting to me because it was basically non-open government involvement, at least when I was doing my research. Remember, I was doing my research prior to this disclosure of 2021 by the government and in 2017 by the New York Times. So I was still on the end of, if you do this, it's there's something suspect about doing it because, well, what happened was that I did this and I found that there were these government programs that were in place and people were a part of them and doing this. And I would go to conferences of colleagues of mine, academic conferences, and I would share my research and they would say stuff like, you've been fooled. Like, you know, these people are fooling you. And no, that's not true. They weren't, were they? So now I can say, well, no, they weren't. But I mean, I, I knew it at the time. I knew I was right. But it's really hard to be in that position. So um, so the question is then, you know, when we continue on here, um, you know, we have to understand that the last four years has been, has created this absolute 180 degree turn. And that's pretty amazing. I didn't plan on that at all. So what surprised me? The government involvement, the fact that people associated with the alphabet agencies were interested in what I was doing, um, that surprised me. That never happened with my straight up kind of Catholic scholarship. Um, what else surprised me? Finding debris and having it you know, analyzed by people with the equipment and the knowledge to understand that it's anomalous, right? That surprised me. Um, 
yeah, that was those were two very shocking kinds of things. <laughs> Did any of that ever carry over to your 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 private life and your home life? And you mentioned that there were times you felt I don't want to keep doing this anymore. Was that something that impacted you, or was it just the pressure or intensity of having? alphabet agencies as we we know the ones you're talking about being so intrusive and invasive oh yeah okay so um yeah so this is a great question it absolutely changed my life entirely private public everything um so so much so that i think of my life in two you know think of it pre-2012 and post-2012 right and I think it opened opened up my eyes to, um, well, there's a lot, I felt a lot more danger, frankly, when I was, when the government hadn't admitted that this was happening, okay? Because it was, I think it, there was, there was danger, you know, there was danger. Um, and what if I uncovered something that people didn't want uncovered, which apparently I think I did, Um and what were the what were going to be the repercussions for that? Right? Um, there was one point when my you know my university email account was doxxed, right, by specific people, and so was Gary Nolan's at the time. We both had it happen at the same time, and that's disconcerting. And there were like veiled threats and things like that. Disconcerting, not cool, right? Um, a lot of the people that I interviewed for my book, they would have the same things happen. Allison Cruz, completely um, harassed, right? Her daughter harassed. Um, Scott Brown, right? All these people. So, you know, that's, that's not right. But the, those things happened. And obviously, you mentioned Gary Nolan, who uh, mm-hmm. was in the phenomenon with Jack Vallee. He's he's been a little bit more media friendly recently, doing some podcasts, and hopefully, he's going to be coming on this podcast in the coming weeks, which would be That'd great. Be great, yeah. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to speaking to Gary if and when that does happen. Do people like that give you the advice? Because I'm guessing this is something that they themselves, like you see, have gone through for a certain amount of time. And if you're involved in handling potential meta materials or crash debris, whatever it may be, then again, these people, are they people you can go to and ask, you know, what do I do about this? And what sort of advice do they give? Yeah, yeah, we were buddies. So yes, Um, Gary Gary and I got just started doing this at the same time. So we were doing it at the same time. We were both already academics that were full professors, you know. Um, And so I felt I could trust Gary, frankly, because he wasn't a ufologist. I mean, not that I don't trust ufologists, (laughs) but, you know, he was part, he was somebody who, who was like me. He started his, his uh, interest in what he did early on, um, got his PhD and has done that his whole life. And so um, he and I went through this together. Um, Jacques was the person who helped us, in a sense, in many ways, talked about, well, he kind of scared me a lot in the early times, like in 2012 and 2013. He was very honest. He said, there are some very nasty people in this field, you know, and you have to be very careful. Don't trust anybody, you know. And so when... um, so yeah, so so he kind of provided some background. He also talked about the alphabet agencies and how they work. And I got to see that up close, you know, and I got to see exactly the strategies that they use. Um, 
so yes, yeah, so we did have people that were helping us out. Yeah, but Gary, I feel like Gary and I, we did this at the same time. Um, I, I'm the one who invited him to the desert when Tyler just didn't, you know, he didn't want anybody to go, but I knew he'd like, he'd like it if Gary went. So, um, so we went out to the desert together. He got some of the most interesting materials there. Uh, you talked about ufologists, a, a good time to bring up this question <laughs> then, because it was my next one. Um, I've seen you mention in an interview that you, you feel there's three types of ufologists, those interested from a young age through experiences or media exposure, believing in the ET hypothesis or ETH, or you've got those who believe in the more consciousness-based spiritual side of the, the phenomenon. Some mm-hmm. would call it the woo. I know that's almost offensive now to some, depending on what they believe in. And there's a third type, which are the invisibles and this would be the group i'm guessing like your your jacks and your Mm -hmm. your gary nolans who do the work quietly in the background with almost little to no social presence or you know clamber for media attention in that group uh one of those would be with tyler d in your book uh which you named after tyler durden from fight club can you talk a little bit about tyler and obviously in the last what six months to a year what we found out online through the bledsoe's ryan bledsoe Tyler's real identity as well. Yeah. So, um, I let, if Tyler wants to reveal his identity, I let him do it just like if James wanted to, he did. Um, but so Tyler's part of a group who is, who I found to be working on this topic in a, in a completely constrained way. When I say constrained, their lives are not like my life or norm, a normal person's life. It, they are not like Gary Nolan. Okay. So, you know, Gary does his research and he is what I'm going to be calling this at the um, conference that's coming up. I'm going to be calling it the visible college, not the invisible college, the, there is a visible college. And so Gary would be one, a member of that, but he's not a member of fight club because within fight club, if you remember that movie, you know, you don't talk about it. So what I found was that a lot of the people who would be like, let's put it this way in the space program itself. If you talk to people who say work at NASA or work at the various other space agencies, they're not going to actually know the, the history of the space program, which is pretty weird, right? So you have Jack Parsons and people like that. They won't know who that is, even though he, you know, jet propulsion laboratory came out of his work. Right. So, so that's Fight Club because they don't talk about it. Some of them don't even know about it, but they're still doing this. It's so compartmentalized that they'll do this this portion of the work, but they their boss doesn't even know what they do. So, so yeah, so I met Tyler, and Tyler was not a normal person at all. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing person. What what's the the reason behind that secrecy? And in, in a day and age where you can find almost everyone and everything online, what's the 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 benefits to keeping work like that kept so secretive? Yeah, so that's one thing that surprised me. I'm glad you brought that up. Apparently, you can't find everything and everyone online. So there are, you know, we tend to think that you know if somebody's not doesn't have a Google presence or a digital presence that they're you know they're not really doing work that's out there. That's absolutely not the case. So I found that a lot of information and a lot of work that's being done is completely being done. And it's probably the most innovative that's being done, but it won't be on, um, it won't be on Twitter. It won't be on Google. You know, you're not going to find it. 
Um, why? There are people that do control what we see on these platforms. It's just a fact. So Tyler, so uh, here's an example. Um, I've been, I've had things happen to my social media accounts, but also my university account a few times. And on one of these times, some people had like leaked out some pictures of Tyler. And immediately I saw some of those pictures get taken off. I don't know who was taking them off, but I do know that sometimes information with respect to Tyler would be taken off the internet and it would be through his work. They would take it off. And again, do you feel people like like Tyler again? I won't say the name because it was out there. Ryan Bledsoe put it online. And if that's a discussion that Tyler wants to come out and have, then they can certainly do that. I'll give him that respect. Do these people feel that by doing this work in a much more quiet and you know solitary way, they stay away from those alphabet agencies? Or are they still getting that same pressure and, and surveillance almost from those? I would say that they're affiliated with these agencies. And that would be why, again, they're lacking in that social presence or coming out and talking about that sort of work, yeah? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're just about to see, you know, we're seeing a lot of things that look like war, but not traditional war. And in this kind of environment, platforms are very, very important in terms of, you know, uh, strategic maneuvers right and so yeah. i think that it's it makes perfect sense that if you have something as potentially if if it's true and it is that tyler was able to use these t- things that he found and these things that he thought he found okay even if he if he didn't really he's using this to create actual biotechnologies that work and are efficacious if that's the case what could be done in other sectors. So, you know, let's not be naive. I am delighted to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, VinoVest. As you all know, I've got a young family and I'm always looking at ways I can save and invest for the future. Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem? Historically, it's been reserved for the ultra-wealthy. VinoVest is changing that. VinoVest is a platform allowing investors to own 100% of their portfolio and easily buy, sell or drink from their collection of fine wines. After missing out on all those next big things to invest in, I'm always looking for what is the next big player in the industry. I was amazed at how easy it was to get started in diversifying your investment portfolio. Wine has one third the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualised returns, proving that the returns can be as robust as your favourite red. VinoVest makes it easy to acquire new investments, equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell and even drink them whenever you want. Enjoy historical returns, direct ownership of world-class wines, portfolio diversity and robust recession resistance. Go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod zero. That's the number zero. The link is also in the description to receive two months of fee free investing. That's two months of fee free investing. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. Sure. 
I want to ask you, you've mentioned the word euphology a few times, and to many in 2022, euphology is almost a bad word or a dirty word. And it tends to now get linked with people from the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, the the conference circuit, the same names, people who maybe make quite a lot of money from the subject, that it's almost a virus doing harm to the genuine efforts of some form of disclosure. Do you agree with that? Did you see a stigma to that word euphology uh, and some of the names who were attached to it? Okay, so I think that remember we have project blue book which you know part of that project was to debunk and also discredit people who had genuine experiences and who wanted to study those so i think that we're seeing a lot of fallout from that and so when um ufology gets stigmatized of course it's going to be stigmatized there was a you know a government effort to do so uh so you do see that but then you also have people that studied the topic but they're not ufologists. So take me, I'm not a ufologist. I come from it from an academic perspective. Gary Nolan, he's not a ufologist. He's a scientist studying it from his scientific framework. Um, So, you know, I think that ufologists start off that way, right? They start off as people who just have a framework for studying this. And then, um, then if they do it for a long time, they get associated with the the ufology. Um, You know, there's, there are, groups, right? There are groups that there are also remember, in my book, I also go through a lot of the hoaxes, I go through a lot of people who hoax UFO pictures, those tend to get a lot more hits than anomalous ones, right? And so you know, we tend to have an idea of what a UFO might look like. And if we see something that doesn't look like that, perhaps it's actually anomalous people aren't going to identify it as that they're they're going to ignore it. So it's generally the hoaxes that get a lot more um, they get a lot more traction in social media than things that are actually anomalous. And you mentioned those those agencies and the pressure that you felt at times during the research for the book and you felt like walking away. Was there ever times where people from within ufology or the world of UFOs, like Jack said, you can't trust anyone, that you felt similar, that there was a pressure or you were being pushed deliberately in, a, in the wrong direction from them? You mean with misinformation? Potentially, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It happens all the time, almost every day. <laughs> I get <laughs> okay. if, I get stuff every day that looks like it, misinformation. Um, so in so this is something that Jacques said to me as well, and also Gary, um, that there's an idea, it's called discernment, and it comes from the Catholic tradition, but basically it's being able to read really well, not physically read, but read people and just read situations and events. And you have to hone that in this in this research. And if you don't have a good ability to figure that out, this this is good, this is going to be hard research to do because there's so much agenda driven narrative that gets placed in front of you. I mean, I had to think that way when I was at, in the first chapter of the book with Gary. You know, we were with Tyler in the desert, and we we constantly kind of had a little you know talks among ourselves. You know, when Tyler was kind of far away, we'd say. What you know, are we being fed this misinformation? And eventually he said, We'll know when I analyze it, we'll know then. And I said, Okay, so yeah. <laughs> I, I used to believe that if the world was exposed to, and I think this is quite a common belief among people, that w- as soon as we find out we're not alone, or you know, the old aliens on the White House lawn scenario, religions yeah. would collapse, which is always the common phrase I think people tend to use. However, 
especially doing this podcast the last 18 months, I find that many of the people who are the most open-minded to the idea of aliens or non-human intelligences are actually those who are, are quite religious themselves. Why do you think that is the case? Yes, this is a great question. I get asked this all the time. So basically, if if we were to have, you know, absolute evidence and and a lot of people would say, well, the religions would dis- disintegrate. I, I completely disagree with that. And the reason is, is because I think that people who are like humanist atheists would probably have the hardest time. Um, and this is the reason, because within the space of most religious traditions, there already exists categories of non-human intelligences, be those demons, you know, um, bodhisattvas, angels, things like that. They already exist within their framework. They already believe that. A lot of people who are religious would not be surprised. I think that they would frame it within their own religious worldview. You know, their religions already have spaces for thinking about these kinds of things. Another thing that people don't realize is that we're not, the, you know, we're, we're in the 20th to 21st century, but we're not the first people to be talking about extraterrestrial life. And I'm not talking about like non-human intelligence. I'm talking about actual, you know, beings on other planets. I mean, people yeah. were talking about this way back in the day in various different religious traditions. Now, I really enjoyed your appearance on Lex Friedman. Uh, and again, I watched that recently uh, in researching this. And at one point you were talking about the monoliths that had appeared in the desert. And that was over yeah. a year ago now. And in yeah. various different places. And was it art or was it something else? And I liked the, you held up his phone and it was like, it looks like a screen. And that's the way the monoliths looked. <laughs> yeah. And you, you started a conversation that got me thinking. I'm reading the, the three body problem just now and doing my best to work my way through that with it's hard enough to read with the ideas that are in it but also the the translation and everything but it's, it's fascinating would disclosure be as likely to happen now on the internet rather than a physical space given how much time we spend online would that you know a non-human intelligence or a race of alien beings view our internet as a viable way to communicate and thinking we're already moving away from physical material things having less and less value with NFTs and cryptocurrency now becoming the norm. Yeah. So this is good. This is a great um, direction. Okay. So um, the book that I'm working on now, um, the name of it is, uh, I've changed the name. So the, the, the publisher will change the name. I promise that. But as I continue on, it changes. And now I'm calling it Tethering into Contact. And so this idea that technology is a space. So basically this idea, and, you know, I tried to get there in American Cosmic too. This idea of technology is not a tool that we use that's apart from ourselves, but kind of a necessary part of our evolution, right? And um, I, so some of the people I feature in this new book are people who use technology to tether into contact. And the way if we wanted to have a visual of that, in many ways, it seems like that movie Avatar by James Cameron. Remember, it was that movie really the most important takeaway, in my opinion, is that you can't enter these alien worlds except through technology. And that's how that that hero of that story enters into this new world, which is this non-human world, right? And so, you know, there are other dimensions. Time is another space. Time is another dimension, right? So, I'm um, so the people that 
are, I'm working with them now, they're technologists and scientists. Um, they're doing it. They believe they're in contact and they're doing this through technologies that they've created in order to tether into these other worlds. So if we do have some kind of communication, I believe absolutely it's going to be through technology. Would we instantly be able to recognize something like that? And I don't want to spoil the, the three-body problem because I know there's listeners going through it just now, but there's the idea that there's a video game used and scientists find that we're we're almost in some sort of contact with another alien race, which is on its way here through this strange video game. And it shows the passage of time. And it yeah, it, it goes a bit crazy, but you have to really read it. I can't do it just explaining it. Do you think there's a chance that we wouldn't know if we were directly being influenced by something else from, from elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. I think it's, um, yeah. So if I were to take off my professor hat and basically say, yeah, I, I'm on board with that. I think that video games are way more interesting than scholars and scientists give them credit for. I mean, they're massively changing the way in which people live um, and believe because a lot of the mythologies that are, I see it with my own kids, like the mythologies that guide them are coming from their video games. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I have students too, who I'm in constant conversation with about like the new forms of life, non-human life in video games and things like that. So yeah, I think that's, that's, and if we, no, I don't think we're going to be conscious of being controlled by or influenced. I don't think so. With technology like Elon Musk's controversial Neuralink on the horizon and plant medicines and their effect on consciousness being studied, it seems that we're maybe not far away from understanding the nature of consciousness and what it actually is. There's a lot of links also between UFOs and consciousness, such as others with a capital O communicating through telepathy or having consciousness power technology. Do you think that understanding consciousness is key to understanding this phenomenon? Yep. Okay, so that's a great question. Um, I'm in the process of hammering out my talk that I'll be giving soon. And um, part of it is that I'm identifying the idea of consciousness. And consciousness is giant, right? So, you know, it's a huge category. Philosophers talk about it in very specific ways that the general population, I mean, they don't need to know all that because it's like, it's so technical. But when I think about people, like, let's take a couple of examples, like Edgar Mitchell, the uh, former, well, he's deceased now, but, you know, the astronaut, Edgar Mitchell, um, he had experience in space. He was doing research into remote viewing, by the way, on his, in his space capsule and telepathy. He had this experience and he came back and he founded uh, IONS, which is a space where he was trying to understand consciousness. Okay. If you go to Tyler D in my book, the reason why he came to me, I didn't go to him, by the way, he sought me out. And he said that a mentor of his in the space program said that the next frontier of understanding UFOs was consciousness. Okay. All right. Then you have someone like Robert Bigelow, who's been doing this for a long time. In fact, we should just call him a ufologist, right? So he might be the, the one billionaire ufologist. Yeah. Um, although I know there's, there are others. Okay. So, um, so he now has, uh, he started a group or he's starting a group. I, I don't know if he has started it yet. And the focus of that is going to be consciousness. Okay. So what's up with consciousness? Um, I don't, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm not convinced that we're on the brink of understanding consciousness. Um, I think it's, it's way too weird 
to figure out. But do I think that this is the frontier for understanding UAPs and UFOs? Absolutely. And the reason I think that is because I think, so if you go back in time and you go to people like, you know, for Western society, at least Western tradition, you have the, the Greek um, Socratics, right? You have Socrates and Plato. Well, these people were basically saying that reality, something that's that's actually more real than this physical 3D reality we live in, is something that you can only abstract. It's only through your mind. It's abstract thinking, mm-hmm. right? And so they, they developed these, well, they didn't develop, they discovered these things called the platonic forms. These were actually objects that weren't in our reality. They weren't in our 3D reality. And people are, mathematicians are still figuring that out today. So my idea is that we are going to have a bridge to lead us to understand these. And that bridge will be tech, right? Maybe it'll be Neuralink, maybe not. So that's, that's what I'm, that's why I think consciousness is what these people are talking about. But I don't think they understand that right now. I think that they don't get that technology is inextricable from what we are going to understand consciousness to be if we do ever understand it at all. Interesting. I have a couple more questions before we get to the the listener questions that we've got. Um, so I'll I'll try and get through these now. We are hearing from people like Louise Elizondo that there are indeed those inside the U.S. government that because of their own beliefs, they do not want to discuss the topic of UFOs, especially out in public, as they fear it demonic in nature. Have you heard much about that? And is that something you came across again within your own research? I have come across that. Um, I would have, um, there were people that I know and that you know, and the listeners know who believe that, um, but they don't believe that it doesn't stop them from talking about it, but they're, you know, they, they do, they're, for want of a better word, they're religious and they, they conceive of this as, um, kind of like within the framework of religion and not extraterrestrial. So yes, I came across that. Do you think these labels of uh, angels and demons are just the way people understood millennia ago when they wrote these religious texts? Something that is actually probably alien or from another place? Okay, so this is a great question. Okay, and this gets to my case-by-case basis. So if we look at... So um, I was asked this just recently on camera. And so they were trying to get me to say, yes, you know, kind of like an, a scholarly ancient aliens thing. But that's not how I see it. I see it case by case. So if you take the scriptural passage that says Jesus is coming on the clouds, okay, um, that's actually just based off of something in the Bible, okay? Um, we, there's no, you know, there's no kind of um, idea there that we can say, well, that's UFOs or something like that. But if you go to like Teresa of Avila, who had an experience of something that was short, uh, like a being that was short and like all on fire and that held a dart-like instrument and used it on her, um, she couldn't decide what kind of angel that was. She couldn't even categorize it. And she finally said, it must be a cherub, right? But she didn't know. So if you look at the original sources for that, they're weird. And I would say that case definitely correlates to, it could be in John Mack's book called Abduction. I mean, that's how, that's how much the patterns correspond. So yes. So do you see what I'm saying? So it's complicated. Yeah. It's more complicated than just making this generalized idea. But I do believe it in certain cases. Absolutely. 
yeah, someone like myself who's got a very high level understanding and knowledge of, for example, the Bible, I'm not well versed in it. Like someone like yourself, obviously. So for me, I, I still don't look at the Bible and go aliens, 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 right. magical yeah. man from the sky, magical man from the sky. <laughs> it's right. it's obviously a, a, there's parables and stories, and I know it's changed over the years as well. Which hopefully don't correct me on that. It has changed over time as well. The the Bible and interpretations and and whatnot. But there are aspects of it, like you say, that potentially it could be it was it was an alien being, an alien race, alien entity, or something that was categorized then as Mm -hmm. an angel or a demon and what we're seeing still is the effect of that from from people in high-ranking government positions that it's holding back their own their own potential progress within the subject why do you think though this is all happening now you've mentioned the last four years you had started your research before uh, 2017 when the new york times article came out which must have been incredible for you to be in the middle of what you were doing or towards the end of it yeah. Do you think the phenomenon itself could be influencing disclosure, as some may think, or do you think it's more more human in, in, in its base that it started with Lou Elizondo resigning and, and people kind of pushing forward like yourself? Yeah, so this is a great question. Again, I'll be trying to tackle this one in the talk. Um, I hope I can do it justice. This is the idea, though, is that there are, I think there is a parallel development. Um, from my perspective, I can see it. And this is what it looks like. It looks like um, one that goes along with media. Because, you know, um, after when the government disclosure, you know, the report, the Pentagon report was coming out about a year, a year and a half before that, I started to get inundated with reporters calling me from major media sources like the New Yorker, the Atlantic and things like that. And they all said that they had a mandate to talk about this topic and to write about it. And I thought that was weird. I was like, wow, you know, who's telling them to do this? So I asked them, I, you know, a couple of them after I figured it out, I said, why is this happening? And they said, we don't know, you know, there's something that's going to happen. And I don't, the, one of them told me, I don't really want to talk about UFOs, but I'm going to, because this is my job basically. So I, so there's that track. It looks coordinated. <laughs> okay. Yep. And then there's the random stuff like with me and my book and things like that, you know, and Gary Nolan even. Okay. So that stuff is, seems to have a life of its own, but seems to be parallel to this other one that's coordinated. Um, I haven't figured out the ins and outs of that. I'm actually going back doing research right now in Jacques Vallée's, uh, some of his ideas uh, in the Invisible College, because what he's doing is he's harking back to a tradition that's an esoteric tradition of events. So you don't look at things as, you know, as moments in time, but you look at these events happening that seem to have some type of coherency. And that's what I see going on. And so, you know, he talked about this and he talked about it with reference to like synchronicity. Um, and I think something like that might be happening. And I think that the coordinated effort, I honestly don't know why that's happening at this moment in time and why it's happening at, at the same time as, you know, our thing. Sure. Uh, do you know what? I've got one more question before listener questions. And the first sure. listener question starts off with the term synchronicity is often used. So we'll get to that in just a second, as you <laughs> mentioned. Um, so uh, last one from myself, though, uh, Diana, do you think the new UAP office can solve the puzzle or does this need a wider remit to include the high strangeness aspects of the phenomenon? 
Okay, so I think that I think that this puzzle is going to be solved basically in its own time and in its own way. Okay, so what that means is that, like I was I was talking about valet's understanding of the way that things happen. I just I just can't see that we can force this to happen. I think that I think that there will be um I think it's going to be a process. Uh Stephen Dick is a the NASA historian. He's been the NASA historian for a long time. Um he's part of uh astrobiology. Um he's been doing work like this for a long time totally quietly. Like he doesn't really have any press releases or anything like that. But he's one of the most interesting people um if you read his work. Uh he's one of the ones that influenced people from a long time ago to think about this not not necessarily Jacques Vallée, but to think about this in terms of technology, because he said, you know, when, you know, think about it, when it happens, we're going to be meeting their technology, just as, you know, just as we send our technology out. And um, so, you know, he's kind of innovative in that way. Um, but he basically said this, he said that the process of disclosure is a years long process. It just doesn't happen overnight. It certainly doesn't. Now, let's get to some of those listener questions. There was a lot of them sent in, so hopefully I've picked uh, some some really great ones, and I had to leave out some really good ones too, so apologies if yours isn't in here this time, but I'm sure Diana will come back on in the future, especially Definitely. when that new book's out. Yeah. Uh, Tim Staley, he says, the term synchronicity is often used by individuals within the UFO community to describe recognisable patterns of intuition that connect events and knowledge relating to their understanding of the phenomenon. How has your definition or interpretation of synchronicities changed since immersing yourself in UFO culture and publishing American Cosmic? Yeah, this is such a great question. So, <laughs> I mean, I wrote about synchronicity in American Cosmic. Um, I've talked about some of the things that happened to me with respect to synchronicity. And I have to say that it's much, much more interesting to me than it ever was ever in my life because I'm beginning to understand it as almost like a force of its own. Um, and like I said, in the previous answer to your question, um, is that, you know, Jacques back in the day, and even today, you know, still grapples with, with this idea of synchronicity and ties it into this invisible college, which is an early modern um, idea of Rosicrucianism, actually. Um, so it's an esoteric understanding of space-time. And if we can think about space-time, you know, space-time does, it's, you know, we experience, so I'm going to talk about dimensions. So we experience time in a linear fashion. It looks to us linear, easy to say it's linear, but physicists tell us that it's not. Okay. So it is something that is be, so we only see a portion of it. Um, we only see what we can see of it. So I think that synchronicity is something very similar to this and that those people who experience it, they're, they're experiencing things that are not in, within this dimension. That's what, now, am I going to do a peer reviewed, you know, uh, no, I'm not going to, because like, you know, people will say, oh, this sounds pretty crazy, but can I speculate about it? Absolutely. Good answer, yeah. Uh, Tim from Washington, another Tim, said, what are your thoughts about Chris Bledsoe's experiences and who do who and what do you think the lady is? I Okay, so um, with Chris Bledsoe, I actually, 
I don't publicly talk about those experiences. We can just leave that one there then. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Is it something though? Uh, I, I've spoken to, to uh, Chase Klutsky, who's, who's spent a lot of time in the Bledsoe's as well, and there's some things Chase will talk about and others she won't. Is it something you can ever see yourself talking about in future? Yes. I mean, I think that the blood, I think that his case is something that is um, paradigmatic in, in terms of what happens to people who have these experiences and then how they get, um, what would you call it? Those alphabet agencies just descend and then mess everything up. And it's a kind of tragic. Well, that is actually almost word for word. The next question to touch on from Dave, why do you think so many intelligence people or intelligence agencies are attracted to the Bledsoe's and the potential phenomenon going on there? Um, for the same reason that they were attracted to Benevitz. Remember that case, the Mirage mm-hmm. Men case? Yeah. Um, because they're able to use that and um, they, you know, the, you know, what happened was that a lot of um, like Alan Hynek, you know, uh, and a couple of other people put misinformation on his computer that kind of sent, he was already in a fragile state of mind and sent him over the edge. Um, Doing that sends a message that the, the, you know, you asked about the stigma of ufology. It's, it basically turns anyone off to studying UFOs because they're like, "Oh, these people are legitimately crazy," um, and they, you know, they were helped into their craziness through the efforts of these people whose ethics I question. Basically, um, this isn't something I would do to somebody. So that's why I think that. Yeah, not. Certainly. I don't think it. You know. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, no, please. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why. I mean, we have to, you know, there are nefarious bad actors in this field. And I think that that's something that's true and has to be acknowledged. And and you've obviously had your own experiences with the Bledsoe's, like you say, and I respect you don't want to talk about those. Chris Bledsoe and his, his family, Ryan's obviously got his own podcast now, Bledsoe Said So. I've interviewed Ryan and, <laughs> and been in touch with him. It's a great name, isn't it? Uh, yeah, um, it is. <laughs> Chris isn't shy in sharing a lot of what goes on in the property. Mm-hmm. Why do you think someone like Chris, who has all these incredible experiences and I talked about Ryan as well and Ryan uh, and Ryan shared quite a lot of those on his own show and on others he puts all these videos on Facebook and is it because they're still quite vague and generic in nature that he is allowed to do this when he's clearly had so much contact throughout his life with these with these agencies why don't they just stop this happening um I think that they're okay with with it I think that if they wanted to stop it, they would. And again, would, would you put that down to the, the vagueness of the videos? Because I I asked Ryan, like, you know, Chris Bledsoe posts a lot of um, Orb videos. And I've said before on the podcast, I, I don't discount the, the, the idea that Orbs are out there in various shapes and forms. It's, it's a fascinating subject, but so much of the, the, the video quality, not just from the Bledsoe's, but from, from anywhere... It could just be dust. It looks like a light and it's it's very hard to distinguish, you know, and I want everything to be a UFO or an alien spaceship or a being or something, but 
the fact is most of them aren't and again is it that vagueness that they allow those sorts of things to be posted and i would imagine there there would be much better quality footage available from the bledsoes that they don't let out um well i think that um i don't know i'm just gonna say that i don't talk about that that case Sure. Well, hopefully it's something we get to hear a bit more from in future. Dave had a follow-up, though, from the Bledsoes. He asks, what is the Vatican's view of the phenomenon? And does Diana think that what they think... Uh, sorry. And does Diana think what they have is a good understanding of the phenomenon based on their records and faith? Okay, so talking about what the Vatican thinks about it is like talking about what does the U.S. government think about UFOs? So there are a lot of different opinions. Okay, a lot of people in the Vatican don't want it. They don't care. (laughs) Right. In the hierarchy. Um, Some people don't want to talk about it at all. Some people talk about it and say, you know, um, that uh, it exists, but we don't really know about it. Some would look back on their records and say, um, yeah, this looks like something that's anomalous and some totally discount it. So there is no set a dogma or statement with respect to what the Vatican thinks about it. Um, However, the Vatican has an association of Catholic scientists and every once in a while, I think like once a year, they are, they host a conference on extraterrestrial, uh, you know, looking Mm, for extraterrestrial mm -hmm. civilizations and things like that. And they have people from Harvard and MIT there. I've been invited there. Um, And so, yeah, they're completely open to it. Um, But is this like intelligent extraterrestrial kind of like reptilians that they're talking about? No, this would be more like, you know, are there microbes on this exoplanet uh, that, you know, we could possibly, you know, utilize this to when we ruin our own planet, something like that. Uh, They work with NASA, you know, and things like that. So they're definitely open to it. Um, And they're up on the research, right? So a lot of people have been doing this research for a very long time. Um, but they're not out. They're not not the ones that are out there making extreme claims, or you know, they're not like they're not doing. Um, they're just not doing press releases every day, or even every week, or ever. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, Sebastian wants to know. He would be interested to know if you have any other examples of saints in Christianity beside Santa Teresa de Avila which she mentions in her book, that have been rumoured to be connected to the phenomenon uh, and maybe more recent ones as well. Yes, it looks like a lot of them have. So um, I have uh, the trial records of Joseph of Copertino. So he's an Italian saint who has levitated and has said to have levitated. Um, So he's really interesting. So Sebastian can look at into him. Um, you also have Sister Maria of Agreda. She's Spanish. She's a contemporary of Joseph of Cupertino. I actually mentioned her in my book, American Cosmic. And she wrote a co- she lived in the 1600s and she wrote a cosmology um, of the world and the earth uh, that, I mean, she wrote this a long time ago and she was basically talking about the spinning earth so she could see it from space because she believed that she was elevated off earth by on the wings of angels. And she also came to the United States and was able to land in the United States and talk about what she saw there, um, which looked pretty accurate. Um, And she's even known in New Mexico and Arizona as the lady in blue. 
So there are a lot. Oh, um, and also uh, Francis, um, St. Francis of Assisi, um, he had a what looks like a pretty intense aerial phenomena experience that radiated him and, and gave him the stigmata, what now is called the stigmata. That was the first instance of it. Um, so yeah, so there are a lot of uh, occurrences and not just the saints that we know. Um, there are, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of records, if not more, that talk about aerial phenomena. I mean, I just found some, you know, in randomly in my searches in purgatory before I ever started this research. So there are, there, there, you know, the histories of religions there, that's a rich tradition for this information. Now, if anyone's listening, thinking I sent these questions over in advance to Diana, I didn't. Um, just given that the next question is from Jean-Francois, uh, he says, Chris Bledsoe said he received a warning from the Pope through Diana. Can you clarify? And for context, Chris Bledsoe said the warning was about risks associated with physical proximity to the phenomenon he observed, making a parallel to St. Francis's stigmata. <clears throat> Yeah, no, that, okay, no, that did not happen. Um, however, through my research, I definitely told him that there are risks associated with that and explained that from the research through people in the fight club that I was doing, um, that research basically showed that there were, there's harm that could be done and it could be burns from radiation. And so I was trying to tell him, be careful, basically. So it was from me, not the Pope. Sure, that's that's probably quite a good thing to clear up. Um, yeah, it's probably it's amazing how these things can get down the kind of grapevine. But that's something we've heard a lot about from Dr. Colm Kelleher and George Knapp, James Latatsky, yep. in their book yeah. uh, Secrets of the Skinwalker, hearing about you know twenty five percent of patients involved in one case study had died from from um, you know whatever they picked up from a close contact with the phenomenon potentially. So yeah, we're hearing more about that now as well and may or may not be directly linked but Havana syndrome is something that's been in the news yep. and there's just been a big yep. piece on 60 minutes about that as well which I've I've not managed to catch myself actually yet um Leonid wants to know do you know anything more about the special room which Tyler spoke of where people felt a kind of heightened creativity and came closer to big ideas what was so special with this room and how it's used okay this is a cool room so this room was set up with every kind of you know, technological toy that a person could ever want to use to, to create stuff, right? And so the people that would be put in the room would be people like Tyler. And they were told that they could basically, you know, we're so constrained by ourselves, you know, in terms of what we can think. Don't think that that's probably not true. That's crazy. People often preface what they say with, oh, I'd want to tell you this, but it sounds crazy, okay? That word was not allowed in that room. All mm -hmm. possibilities were considered in that room. So it was a room where people were given license to be as crazy and speculative as they could be. And they were. And that's where amazing technologies, they came out of that room because of those conversations that happened there. Awesome. I've got three more listener questions and then we can let Diana get on with the rest of our day. You've been amazing with your time. Um, the first one is from Walker. He asks, in American Cosmic, Diana mentions John Mack's term ontological shock. Did she experience any of that during the investigation of the phenomenon for the book or since? And how did that change you? Also, has the phenomenon taken an interest in, in Diana herself since she investigated it? <laughs> That's okay. Um, 
yeah, I absolutely felt the ontological shock. I feel like it lasted a year. Okay. It was a very, very uncomfortable, uncanny time um, in 2012, where I literally, I was actually working on The Conjuring as a consultant at that time. And I was, um, I was hanging out, I guess you could say, with uh, the screenwriters, Chad Hayes and Carrie Hayes, who knew they could just tell that something was really going on. And so they really wanted to know what's going on. And so at that time, I introduced them to my research and they, they were also blown away. So, I mean, I think what happened at the time was, remember, I hadn't entertained the reality of UFOs at all. And when I considered what happened was this, was that I connected almost in an instant. I connected during that UFO conference what these people had experienced and what I had studied my whole life. So it was almost as if I studied this my whole life and all of a sudden somebody hit me in the head and said, this is it. And that was disconcerting. And so, yeah, that was my ontological shock. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger because of the people that I met, um, like Tyler and James, um, now known as Gary. <laughs> so, yeah, so does the ph phenomena take, um, I think probably the phenomena, if there is a phenomena, it absolutely has been around people that have been thinking about it their whole lives. That's how I view it. I think so. And that's not a professor answer. That's me. That's an answer that I'm giving that the synchronicity of it and the things that happen are so unimaginable and improbable that I believe. Yeah. And we've heard the term, uh, and I've spoken to Luella Zondo about it a few times, it's sticky portfolio and the, the hitchhiker effect. And people like George Knapp have talked about how his own wife experienced things, you know, when he came away from Skinwalker Ranch. Is that ever something you've had any experience of yourself? Okay, so, yeah, so I talked to Gary about this as well. So he he's the first one who told me about this um, years ago. And he said, you want to be careful about going to the places where there is hot activity because they're, you know, they'll come, they'll follow you home. Um, yeah, I've, I've had that happen, which is um, I, so I'm careful. Let's put it that way. Yes, very careful. If somebody's trying to say to me, come out here, you'll definitely see this or that. I won't go. <laughs> I would say, why do you think I want to see that, <laughs> this or that? No, that's fair enough. And I think with that religious background, you you look at things like exorcisms mm -hmm. and you wonder, you know, getting rid of some entity that you don't want to be there. Is that something you think would ever play into or you would recommend to people in those types of situations that, you know, have some sort of religious ceremony to get rid of any entities that may be hanging around? Okay, so yeah, I think that um, I I actually am practicing religious person. Okay, so I believe in in I mean this is not me as a professor talking, but I am a you know I am a practicing Catholic, and um, I think that that helps me here. Um, I think that, and I'm not being exclusive. So uh, I have a friend who's a practicing um, Muslim. And he also does this research. He's, you know, he believes in God and he, he feels the same way that I do. So I think that this is something that 
people in the, you know, the kinds of projects that are going now, like in Avi Loeb's project, the Galileo project and things like that, this is stuff they'll never talk about because it's not something that they would believe in. But if you do look at the experiences that people have, some are frightening, right? And do you think that, do you think that an, how do you think an atheist is going to feel about these kinds of things? You know, they're going to, they're not going to like it. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think that this, this is part of the consciousness part of it that I think people are, you know, they, they come from a materialist point. They study it, like, let's take Bigelow. And then all of a sudden they get to consciousness. Well, that's a trajectory. That's like, you know, that's not a coincidence. That's something that I think is part of the whole question of these things, definitely. It certainly seems like a stop along the way on the journey, doesn't it? That you you mm-hmm. advance to that next question. And final question from Brendan. Has Diana any opinion on the current time travel narrative that's being pushed seemingly everywhere? Something that, especially in some interviews I've done with Ross Coulter, Frank Milburn and Michael Masters, people have talked about, you know, potential future us, future humans uh, and things like that. Have you got any opinion on that, Diana? Right. Yeah, so um, I've been hearing about this for a long time, and, um, and now it's something that's out there. Um, I think this about it. I think that that a lot of work has been done, especially by people like Eric Wargo, um, whose work is really interesting, where he basically says that we have some inkling of the future, and how do we get that information? Um, so he's, you know, a lot of people use the framework of we time travel this information. You know, we get this information from the future. Um, a lot of people that believe they manifest stuff. So there are people who've had these experiences. This would be under the rubric of post-contact effects where they have a, a contact and all of a sudden they feel like they can manifest stuff. Like they'll think blueberries and all of a sudden blueberries, you know, will show up at their door. People, hey, I got these blueberries for you. Well, what's really, according to like someone like Eric Vargo's um, framework would be that in this actually is, is portrayed well in arrival, the movie arrival where the, this woman who's a professor of, you know, she's a linguist. She has contact with these beings, these extraterrestrial beings. And then all of a sudden her whole sense of time shifts and she's able to tell the future and the past, you know, time becomes something completely different for her. Well, this is a post-contact effect. A lot of people have this when they have contact and they feel like they're manifesting somebody, something. But Eric Wargo would basically say, no, they just know on some level that that, you know, in their future, they're going to experience that. They think they're manifesting it, but it, it really is just they've gone through time and all of a sudden there, there it is. And they somehow saw it beforehand. So that's going into the future, taking information from the future and informing the present. So that is a lot. Is that part of the phenomena? Um, That seems to be a post-contact effect. What do I think about it? Um, It's fascinating. I don't know what to think about it. And it lends a bit of credence, doesn't it, to the idea that if we experience time in a linear fashion, but time isn't linear, and there are, you know, hypotheses and theories that maybe some of these objects or beings don't experience time in the same way we do. Uh, yep. And when Lou Elizondo was on the podcast, now it seems like a lifetime ago, he talked about a cigarette or a cigar burning, and mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the part that's burned, the, the ash, that's the past, the, the, bar- the part that's still to burn is the future. And he says, we live in that cherry that's burning at the moment. But if you zoom in on it, that that cherry isn't symmetrical all the way around. There's, you know, there's overlaps mm-hmm. and burning. And mm-hmm. if something mm-hmm. could experience that whole portion of the cherry at the same time, 
then it could potentially look like it was from the future, from the past, and be existing in different points all at once that we just can't do. So I've always thought that was a pretty interesting way to look at the, the future human mm-hmm. hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. But listen, Diana, you've been amazing with your time. And I'm just going to ask you to hang on just for one moment when I say goodbye to you, just to say thanks personally off air as well. Uh, oh, you, sure. men- you mentioned the new book. When can people expect that from you? No pressure, of course. <laughs> yeah, so that should be out in uh, late 2022, um, 2022 or early 2023. Excellent. I look forward to that. And how can people follow you on the socials? I'm on Twitter at this moment. And I'll put the links for the description. It's DW Pasulka, I believe, is yes. the, the Twitter handle. Yeah. I'll pop that in there. Of course, the links to American Cosmic. If you haven't read it, go out and read it. I'll put the links to buy it in there as well. If you have read it, go and read it again. It's a fascinating read, especially in preparation for that new book coming as well. Diana, it's been great talking to you, and I look forward to having you back on again in future. Thanks so much. It was really fun. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should because it doesn't really scare me.
Thank you.